Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, <laughs> but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Chapter 34 the Department of Mysteries. Harry wound his hand tightly into the mane of the nearest Thestral, placed a foot on the stump nearby, and scrambled clumsily onto the horse's silken back. It did not object, but twisted its head around, fangs bared, and attempted to continue its eager licking of his rope. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Just a few announcements about my travel plans, everybody, before we get started. I will be in London on June 18th and in Paris on June 22nd, and I would love to see you. You can find information about both of those events at harrypottersacredtext.com. And if you can't go to Europe or you don't live there, join my newsletter. <laughs> it's like the same as going to Paris. It, I mean, I sometimes post pretty pictures of cathedrals. You do, and it's a journey into a world that I never would have gotten to go to. I love to explore questions of spirituality, community, and social change. So if you're interested in getting a nice little email on a Friday morning from me, go to kaspertk.com and click on the sign up for the newsletter button. It is the only newsletter I am signed up for, and it is also my favorite newsletter. But the other newsletter that I love is the Harry Potter Sacred Text newsletter, which everyone should also be signed up to. I'm not signed up for that one, though. I write it. <laughs> That's the difference. Yeah. <laughs> So as many of our listeners know, I spent much of 2018 
ill and undiagnosed and unclear as to what I was sick with. And because I didn't know what I had, I like was telling myself all sorts of stories. I was like, oh, I have a virus. Oh, I'm tired. Oh, I'm sure getting sick a lot. And at a certain point, I just started getting embarrassed by how frequently I thought I was getting weird viruses and sort of not lying about it, but just like not telling people. I was like, oh, I just want to stay in tonight. It just felt ridiculous that I was quote-unquote, sick all the time because it did not occur to me that it was, like, a bigger illness. Anyway, I shouldn't have, but something I started to do was conceal some of my symptoms from my partner, Peter. He was very supportive of me, but it just—I don't know how else to say it. I was ashamed of, like, how sick I was. I felt like I think of myself as a strong, healthy person. I don't want to be weak. One day I was driving to his house, and I was like— a mile from his house, and I had to pull over to the side of the road because I got lightheaded and started sweating, and then I had to open my car door very suddenly and very dangerously (laughs) into oncoming traffic to throw up. And I closed the door, and I sat, and I was, like, sweating and, like, really not feeling well. And he had people over, like, for a little party, and I did not want to, like, show up sick And I was closer to his house than my house. It would have been more convenient for me to go there to lie down. But I was just so embarrassed to be, like, sick again in front of these friends who I had canceled on once before because I was sick. And so I texted him a lie. I was just like, oh, so sorry, suddenly can't come. And he was, you know, like, why? What happened? And I was just like, just can't. So sorry. And turned around the car and drove home. And what's so funny about concealment in certain circumstances is that you don't always have, like, an exit strategy. Like, I just concealed to get myself out of the immediate awkwardness. And, like, obviously we had to have a conversation later where he was like, what happened? What was that about? And, like, actually discuss what happened. And I think that we see that in this chapter, where, like, Neville asks Harry, how are we going to get out of here? And Harry's like, who cares? Like, we came here to find Sirius. It doesn't matter how we're going to get out. We just have to stay quiet and do what we've got to do. And, like, we'll figure out the rest of it later. And I do think that there are things that we are entitled to conceal. There are secrets that we are entitled to have. But then also there are times where concealment just becomes a trap of our own making, where we've concealed so much that we can't break out of it. So I'm interested in talking to you about that today, Casper. I think a lot of the concealment in this chapter is strategic and wise, and then a lot of it is, like, really dangerous. First of all, I'm so sorry that you you just had that feeling where you're like, I don't want to disappoint someone, and this truth is so, like, not pleasant. That's such a sucky feeling, so I'm sorry you had that. I feel like we all have versions oh, of that, right? Like, totally. You don't need, like, a weird disease. Absolutely. And I think that sense of one concealment leading to another and then suddenly it's out of control is something, hopefully, at a small scale, but even at a big scale, I, th- I think we're familiar with. So I'm interested to see where we can actually find that kind of Maybe it's like consequences concealment in this episode. But Casper, would you like to, instead of conceal, reveal through the 30-second recap? I'm ready. Do you have 30 seconds on the clock? Oh, I sure do. On your mark. Get set. Reveal. Reveal. 
Okay, so the six of them get on the Thestrals. Obviously, for Ron, it's totally freaky because he can't see what he's flying on. It's long. They're, they're flying into the distance. I have questions about who can see them and not, but we'll return to that later. They arrive. They go into the ministry. No one seems to be around, which is a little spooky. Um, they make it into the, the first door. Oh, my gosh, everything starts spinning. Hermione comes up with a great idea of, the, like, let's mark it with a cross. There's a room with brains and, like, green liquid. Then there's a room with the stone with the—I with the, um, the, always imagine it to be this velvet curtain. Anyway, then they come to the, the hall of things, and— there turn around and it's we don't know who it is yet but it's not going to be good (laughs) and it's obama (laughs) okay vanessa that was a light speed edition let's see what you have to add three two one go so luna is like writing a thestral done it a million times graceful graceful they all get there harry keeps trying to ditch everyone and neville's like dude stop trying to ditch us we're super coming with you the thing that you didn't really get to is they get to this place where there's all these orbs and there's one with harry's name on it question mark and harry's like i'm gonna touch it and ron's like i don't have one with my name on it and they're like harry you shouldn't touch it and he's like it's mine i should touch it and as soon as he touches it it's warm and that is when somebody says i see you potter give that to me what the hell is with ron being like there isn't one with my name i want one (laughs) i'm ron (laughs) like is it that ron feels like he's constantly so concealed by harry that he's constantly looking for himself the thing that i really resonate with is is here i mean they don't know that this is a prophecy just yet but I think all of us are looking for ways to help us find the right path in our life, right? And so if there's something with our name on it that has something to say about who we are or why we're here or why things are happening to us, I would want one. You know, I'm just thinking about the, like, massive rise in, like, horoscopes and the way in which we're all engaging with, like, I'm a Taurus, so this, or I'm an Enneagram 7, so I'm that. And it's it's helpful to have... Like someone just explained to you, like you're angry all the time because of this. You're like, oh, okay. Yes. I just, I think that Ron is actually a great example in this moment of people who are looking in the wrong place. It's he feels not seen in his life. So he's literally looking anywhere Harry sees himself. Ron is therefore trying to find himself. And, like, that is just a recipe for disaster and for saying really dumb things. Like, where's mine? And I think that the kind of the dial is amped up for now, right? The twins have left. Ginny is still younger than him, but he's now the eldest at Hogwarts. And he's, you know, they're having to think about what future career they might have. And he's looked at his older siblings who've managed to find a path, whether we agree with Percy or not. Everyone has found a, a real kind of vocational call. And Ron doesn't. You know, he's 15, 16. So I think that Ron is having this feeling of like, there. you know, my, what is my life path? It's concealed from me. And I'm I'm looking for signs to help me know what my path is. Yeah, but it's not as though there is a pre-written path that is concealed from us, right? Like life happens and unfolds and we make choices within the doors that open for us. And like... Ron is looking for a fallacy, right? Like, even this prophecy for Harry, it says Harry Potter question mark. This is literally a prophecy with a question mark on it. Yeah, that's what I love about the question mark is it's not necessarily questioning the whole idea of prophecy, but it is saying, like, even this prophecy is too broad to know exactly who it applies to. And we know at least two people of these six who it could apply to, let alone if there's more. I think to think of fate as something that is already set, but it is just concealed from us, is is probably not the best way to imagine our future. Yeah. 
talking of doors that open or don't open for you, one of the most interesting just geographical things or, or kind of architectural things that happens in the Harry Potter books happens in this chapter. The gang walks into this kind of, in my head, it's this octagonal room. I don't know if that's quite true. And once they've closed the door, um, it starts to spin. And so it's completely unclear which door they walked in through and which door they would want to go into next, as Harry had always imagined in his dream. And so there's a very kind of physical concealment, right? It's like being in a maze. And that is fun if it's set up in a game situation. But here the stakes are so much higher. And so concealment is really, it's dangerous. And I thought that was really interesting within within the kind of architectural space that the gang is in. Yes, absolutely. The doors are trying to conceal from them. And then Hermione says like flagrate or whatever her thing is, right? And she has figured out a way to stop the doors from being able to conceal themselves, right, by marking them, like marking the doors that they had opened. And what was so interesting to me about that is that they are whispering, right? They, like, don't want to be seen. They are very much trying to stay concealed, even though they are on this search. And yet, again, this to this question that we were talking about at the very beginning of the episode— It's what's the exit strategy here? They're leaving evidence behind, right? They are simultaneously trying to be concealed and not caring if they're concealed. And I think that that is the balance of emergency mode, right? They show up at the Department of Mysteries and Harry's like, hey, here on a rescue mission and is like looking for the person to have them weigh his wand. They don't want to be seen, but they also can't care about whether or not they're seen. And I think that that was something I experienced again while being sick. Like, there were certain moments where I could prevent, you know, the full, like, weight of my sickness from being seen. And then I would be, like, walking the dog in the morning and have to throw up on my walk and be like, well, people probably think I'm still drunk or hungover, right? Like, I can't conceal it, so I'm, like, not even going to try. That struck me with the Thestrals as well. I was like, yeah, okay, like, there's going to be plenty of people who are looking in the sky and being like, yep, that's definitely some Thestrals that are landing in the middle of London. That Definitely in that emergency mode, the stakes of what you conceal change. So I would like to talk about this line, which is Ron is saying how, like, it's hard with the Thestrals because they're invisible. And Harry says to him, you better hope it stays invisible. And I was just thinking that the ability to choose when to conceal and when not to conceal is a privilege, Mm. right? Like, being white means that you can, like, choose to be invisible. You can choose to conceal yourself. Whereas being an African-American, that is not a choice that is available to you, right? And we see that with the Thestrals. It is a privilege if you can't see the Thestrals, right? If the Thestrals are invisible to you— it means that you haven't been traumatized. And so I I was just interested in the idea that sometimes the ability to be concealed, the option to conceal is in and of itself a privilege. A privilege that's not available to everyone. This is interesting, Vanessa, because I saw also a real connection between the people who can see the Thestrals and then the people who can hear the voices when they come to the room with the with the veil. And Harry is more than interested. He is captivated this. It feels like siren songs in the Odyssey where, you know, Odysseus, he has his like sailors and rowers put wax in their ears and he is tied to the mast so he can hear the sirens but can't do anything about it. And Harry is really drawn closer and closer and hears these voices. And so to some extent, here again is that uh, image of someone who has not chosen to 
to be exposed to this experience, right? But is able to see or hear things beyond what the rest of the crew is able to hear or see because of the experience that he's had, which connects to me, I think, to the broader privilege point. Yeah, it's also like further complicated by the fact that Hermione is like, there are no voices. And she says, well, whatever, whatever the veil was, it was dangerous, is what Hermione says. And we know that that veil is death. And so Hermione is like, death is dangerous. And Harry, because he can hear the voices behind the veil, is like, death is mysterious. Mm. Death is not dangerous. Death is interesting. I just think it's so interesting the way that different people think about death. Death is a mystery that is completely concealed from all of us. None of us know how we're going to die, under what circumstances, at what age, what it actually means to die, what happens after we die. It is a completely concealed thing. And it's just so interesting to me that Harry, because he's witnessed death, has a little bit of insight into it and therefore finds it, like, interesting and and something to be in conversation with. And Hermione, having not experienced it at all, is like, nope, it is just something to be afraid of. When something is completely concealed, it can be horrifying, right? I mean, the broader point that strikes me is that when you don't know about something, it's so much easier to think in extremes, right? This is totally wrong, or it's totally right, or they should have absolutely done that, or I would have done something totally different. And often the more you learn about any subject, the more complex and hopefully interesting it becomes. You know, I remember thinking this about my high school physics teacher, who obviously knew a lot about physics, but was also super religious and talked about her faith in this very kind of mysterious way and that her faith was strengthened by her understanding of science. That was the first time that I was like, oh, maybe the more you learn about something, actually, the more you realize that you don't know, right? That there are still things concealed from us. And so we're more open to mystery, for example. And so I think in this moment, Hermione is able to think in absolute binaries because she hasn't been given that first morsel of taste of something. And when we do learn more, it's harder and harder both to judge someone or to think in absolutes about what's right and wrong, how to think about the law, how to think about relationships, The that just the more that you know about all the different pieces of the puzzle, the, the more complex it gets. I mean, we see Harry, right? There's one thing that seems very obvious to Harry, which is that he is allowed to touch this orb because <laughs> it has his name on it. With a question mark. With a question mark, which he just seems to be ignoring entirely. <laughs> but he's like, no, it's mine. I'm entitled to it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like anything that it's about me shouldn't be concealed from me. Mm. I, like, I have such mixed feelings about that idea. Like, to some extent, I think it's true. I think that we are entitled to, like, all of our medical information and and to, like, seeing all of our academic records. And, like, I hate the idea that there are, like, secret FBI files on us or whatever. But this sense of, like, nothing about me has the right to be concealed It seems to me somehow misguided, and it it gets Harry into trouble here, but I can't quite articulate why it's misguided. The thing that seems so interesting to me is Harry is now 15, nearly 16. And if you think about kind of sex ed, this is about the age where even if their parents don't want them to learn something, at least in the UK, I think, 
children allowed to opt in against their parents' will to learn about sexual education. And so there's something, I mean, that's a slightly different context, right? Because it's all of us learning about our bodies and reproductive processes and sexually transmitted infections and diseases. And here there's something very specific to Harry in particular. But nonetheless, I feel like we have always talked about these characters as children. And for me, we're now starting to get into a little bit more of a gray zone. You know, soon these characters would be able to serve in the military. Uh, you know, they're older than the age of consent. That boundary is starting to become more gray as well. And so who has the right to know what about whom, I think has to be informed now more and more about their age as well. I completely agree. I mean, and it says like this prophecy is 16 years old. It struck me. I was like, oh, our Harry is growing up. And I think that's right. I don't think children are entitled to all of the information about themselves. And I absolutely also think you're right that there is this in-between period that's so difficult with young adults where you're like, I, I don't want to burden you with information that is going to inhibit your development in a healthy way. But also you have rights and I want to honor your rights. And here we have to question Dumbledore's decision making again, because there's also the question of how does Harry receive this information, right? The way that he's about to find out towards the end of this book is a really unfortunate way. I, you know, I'm thinking about how children learn that they might be adopted, for example. I mean, it's always going to be a destabilizing experience, but it can be one that is done with love and honesty and trust and ways that really build up the child's sense of an expanded family rather than it being something of a betrayal. And is there a chance that Harry could have learned this information before with the question mark attached to the story saying, we don't know if this is true, but this is information that you have a right to know. And don't touch it, (laughs) which I think is also a metaphor within our lives, right? Like if somebody tries to tell you who you are, like don't necessarily believe them, right? If somebody says to you, oh, you remind me of me, you should also be a doctor. And you're like, oh, I never wanted to be a doctor, but should I be a doctor? Like we should resist when other people try to tell us who we are. And not necessarily touch it, right? Or always see it as being with a question mark. Yeah. I mean, if we think about concealment, there's an intentionality to keeping something hidden. And that means we have to interrogate what is the motivation for keeping that secret. I think that's the thing about concealment that I'm really sticking with. There is a good reason why the Ministry of Magic is keeping these prophecies under lock and key. The most mysterious, the most hidden part of the ministry is this room for good reason, because otherwise everyone is going to be obsessing about, you know, what's my destiny? I need access to this information. It's kind of like, you know, the state secrets of the magical world. I think if you're trying to keep a society together, that is a strategically sound decision. But like, what's what's the bigger purpose that the ministry is concealing all of these prophecies? Because there are at least 97, probably 100 of these, you know, rows and rows and rows of these glass orbs that all contain prophecies. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if some of them are ancient and like have already come to pass. Like, would you want to walk into that room and see Vanessa Zoltan question mark? Like, what would you do if you had access to that? Right. Like, would you want to know when you were going to die? Yeah. I would love to know when I was going to (laughs) die if that was predetermined. Really? Yeah, I think it would. I I love to backwards map 
I was trained first as a teacher, and you're given learning goals for the end of the year, and then you map backwards month by month as to what it is that the kids need to learn. And yeah, I think it would be really helpful to know when I'm going to die and how. But like, I think I'm less interested in my own life than in the Earth's future. But I would take that information. Would you not? Do you not want to know when you are going to die? It's tricky. It's tricky. I think I prefer to not know. Hmm, why? In part because it leaves an openness to life and what it would do or what I could do. You know, would I would I start taking really stupid risks, for example? If I know I'm going to die when I'm 77, am I going to do like... I just watched this video of a man jumping from 25,000 feet out of an airplane without a parachute and landing in a net. I mean, just the most absurd things. I'm like, why humans do we do this? This makes zero sense. Was he okay? He was fine because he landed at the edge of the net. Like, it was close. So I think maybe I would abuse the information, you know, and I think in some ways there's an illusion of freedom, at least in living without knowing that kind of information, of keeping that concealed from us. But I, but it's an interesting thought experiment. What would the world look like if we all knew the date we were going to die? I guess I'm just sort of changing my opinion. I thought that there was something maybe like entitled about Harry grabbing this orb, but I think I would do the same thing. I think I would be like, this is about me. I have the right to know. I guess the only thing that I don't think I have the right to know is like, If you had a diary and I saw my name on it, I don't think I have the right to know your feelings about me. And I guess to some extent I think that that's because it's actually about you, right? Like that's not a fact about me. Those are your feelings about me. And so even if in your diary it had things that could be helpful to me, like, boy, would I love Vanessa more if she started pronouncing my name right? I still don't think I would be entitled to that, right? I love that difference. Yes, there's a kind of statistical, like, you have blood type X or you have a diagnosis Y versus when you say that, I feel this, right? Like, those are very different things. And frankly, that second category could be more relationally destructive as well. So I think that's a great difference. Yeah. Right. And I also think this with Peter. I think I should have been more honest with him earlier about my health. I was just confused. It wasn't poorly intended. But I also, you know, I had the right to conceal. It was like embarrassing. You don't want to be talking about like vomiting all the time. But if I had something contagious, I absolutely would have not had the right to conceal that information from him. I think we have to be thinking about like, I have the right to keep this private. Like this is mine. And, like, I don't have to share it. And then there are other things that I do think that we are morally obligated to share. And there are things we're legally obligated to share. I mean, all of this is kind of reminding me of the current conversations around kind of elite university admissions processes. I mean, we've seen these numerous scandals around people paying to get in. But even the standard application process and the the ingredients that admissions officers look for, you know, trying to create the best college experience for their students is still somewhat mysterious. And there's plenty of students who, like Ron, I think would say, whether they get in or they don't get in, of like, why? I I want to fully understand why you made the choice that you made. And to that extent, I do feel like they're entitled to know. Yeah. And then as somebody who has for many, many years now hired people, right, and like gone through hundreds of resumes in order to pick someone to hire, 
you like don't necessarily always know exactly why you pick the person you pick, right? right? Or you write a job description and then somebody has a certain skill set and you're like, oh, that would actually be wonderful for this job, right? And I remember when I was working at New Leaders at that education nonprofit I worked at for years, we all came into a meeting thinking for sure there was going to be like there was a clear person that we were going to hire. We ended up hiring somebody else. And I think we made the right decision in the end. So I think that these things can be a mystery and concealed from ourselves and complicated. And I am not defending corrupt systems. Oh, absolutely. But but even to know, like, listen— I'm sorry I picked the other one because it just felt better. Even that honesty, I think, would feel better than clouding in some mysterious process, which is deemed scientific in some way. Because I think in those cases, it feels better to know the truth. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Vanessa, one of the things that isn't really in the chapter, but its absence struck me, was just as the six of them are walking from room to room and having these strange experiences with the veil and with this kind of sea of brains, is that Voldemort and and the Death Eaters are concealed and probably watching them in some way. I mean, I don't think they're just sitting there and waiting in that hall of prophecies. And so that made the whole thing even more eerie, you know, when you know as a rereader that that there are concealed eyes following the whole story. Yeah. It's something that weirds me out about London, although 
the United States has certainly come a long way toward meeting London there. But I remember reading articles 15, 20 years ago about the CCTV, you know, the closed circuit TV video cameras that are up all over London and that they're basically like there's nowhere in London that you can go without being recorded. I was horrified when I first learned about that. And I think that, you know, to our familiarity theme a few weeks ago, you get used to these things. But the idea that I can't be concealed and Lord knows I'm not committing any crimes. I'm just like going out without brushing my hair. But like it was a very oppressive feeling to me to think that there are places in the world that I could go where I couldn't be concealed. One of the few upsides of that is that it solves many plot points in my current favorite TV show, Line of Duty. I feel like that's why so many great crime shows are set in London. Maybe. Oh, my goodness. That's fascinating. Because it's like, well, we can always just go into the CCTV. (laughs) The other thing that I'm just interested in, Casper, is the things that we conceal from ourselves. Mm. You know, Harry keeps going back and forth as to whether or not he thinks Sirius is dead. And there's a line in the chapter that says an unbidden voice inside his head was like bringing up maybe Sirius is dead. And to some extent, Harry knows that Sirius isn't dead because he he thinks he would feel it in his scar. But I wonder the things that I conceal from myself, all the difficult truths we just hide from ourselves in order to function and tell ourselves prettier stories. And even on a on a kind of less intense level, I find myself wanting one thing on a Tuesday and another thing on a Wednesday and then a third thing altogether on a Thursday. And I feel not even in that case that I'm actively concealing them from myself, but that they are just concealed from me. <laughs> and I'm like, why can't I know all these things all at the same time and then make a decision? Yeah, I mean, I think I've said this before, but one of the fears that plague me are like, What is the thing that everybody knows I'm bad at that I just am walking through the world being like, I don't even know that that's a thing, let alone that I'm bad at it. Hashtag 30 second recap. (laughs) That's not it. (laughs) It's this other thing. I know. I know exactly how I am at the 30 second recap. So, yeah, I guess I think that that's the point of friendship, right, or of community is to even if they don't tell you the things you're bad at, sort of like secretly have your back for the things that you're bad at because they know. Or just to say, you've got spinach in your teeth. Yeah. Like, please don't conceal that from me, everyone. Vanessa, this week we're continuing with our spiritual practice of sacred imagination. And I've chosen a passage which doesn't have a lot of character-driven plot, but is more descriptive. So I really want to invite you and everyone listening to focus on the physical surroundings. What can you see? Are there echoes? Is there a smell of the place? What's the touch, you know, on your skin or under your feet to see if we can understand more about this very mysterious place within the ministry that we're really seeing for the first time? In his dream, Harry had always walked purposefully across this room to the door immediately opposite the entrance and walked on. But there were around a dozen doors here, just as he was gazing ahead at the doors opposite him, trying to decide which was the right one, there was a great rumbling noise, and the candles began to move sideways. The circular wall was rotating. Hermione grabbed Harry's arm as though frightened the floor might move too, but it did not. 
For a few seconds, the blue flames all around them blurred to resemble neon lines as the walls sped around them. Then, quite as suddenly as it had started, the rumbling stopped and everything became stationary once again. Isn't that fascinating? I'd never noticed the candles before. Yeah. Did they turn into a line? Yes. And the fact that there's blue candlelight, can we talk about that? Like, I'd never thought about the room in that way. Mm. What did you notice? I mean, it reminded me of my experiences with earthquakes Mm. and how the last earthquake I felt, the first thing I noticed before I felt myself moving was that the lighting fixture suddenly started swinging. And I was like, how did that start (laughs) happening? And then I was like, oh, the whole room is shaking. And just that feeling of, like, not being able to figure out what's moving and why. Right? And, like, it's often something on trains where you're like, is my train moving? Is that train moving? And then you, like, try to feel, like, is the seat vibrating? No, it's the other train moving. And, like, how disorienting that is. Or the other thing I hate is why do people keep the window shades on planes down while you're landing. I, like, want to know when I'm going to hit the ground. And so, like, not having the visual cues to understand your physical whereabouts can be so disorienting. That's what I felt, right? Like, I was Hermione reaching out for Harry. Literally, what is happening in this room right now? The thing that really struck me was was because of this blue light, I mean, I think of hospitals, that kind of very cold lighting, maybe it's very dark everywhere else, this is the only light that we see. And so the whole area, especially we're going to see this room with brains, like I'm suddenly seeing this more as a medical complex rather than, to me, it had that Hogwartsian mm. kind of medieval castle vibes in my head until reading it this time. And now I'm seeing it as this kind of more clinical space, right? Like maybe a terrifying ward where all sorts of scary medical things are happening and there's nobody there. And it, it just became much more like a horror film rather than kind of a, a historical romance adventure. <laughs> right. I mean, it also reminds me of Gringotts, right? The way mm. that like Gringotts intended intentionally tries to confuse you. I mean, Hogwarts does this to a large extent, too, with the moving staircases. It seems as though the magical world is trying to constantly disorient you with where you are in physical space. And the way that they travel with flu powder, right? Like, one of the reasons I love to walk so much is that it's just, like, a very human pace to move. And it's, it's literally orienting. I find that always such an interesting idea. Like if you're flying or you're traveling a long distance faster than the speed of, you know, human power, that your soul takes a few days to catch up with you. And that feels true to me in some sense that, you know, you're really not quite all there until, you know, your body has kind of acclimatized again or you're able to move at a speed which seems biologically reasonable, unlike flying, which I'm still actually unable to explain physically. (laughs) No, I... I'm like, this thing is heavy. (laughs) And the wings aren't flapping. Exactly. So why are we staying up? I know there's something called lift, but I don't know how that works. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Were there any other senses, maybe sound or smell, that you experienced this time? Well, the other thing, and this could be because I'm—you're welcome. Everybody talked so much about vomiting in this episode. But, like, (laughs) I'm someone who gets motion sick. And so, like, the idea of, like— 
the world spinning. Like, and I just like can't imagine <laughs> walls starting to spin. How sick I would feel. Like, I feel like Hermione is possibly holding on to Harry just because she's like, I'm gonna throw up. The other thing that's so startling is the rumbling stopped, right? This is a loud. This is not a silent process. So again, in this sense that they're trying to conceal some things, but other things they're just being flagrant about as they move through the ministry. I mean, this noise is clearly going to draw attention from, you know, other staff or people nearby. The other thing that just struck me is that it must actually be the floor that's moving because If the whole building is shifting, things would fall. I know magic is weird, but, like, I wonder if because of the relativity of how movement feels, it looks like the walls are moving and it feels like the floor isn't because they're standing on the floor. But what would make the most sense in a physical way is if it was the floor that was rotating and not the walls. I'm going to suggest not asking too many questions. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Odessa. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Our voicemail this week is from Lorraine Heyman. Hi, Ariana, Casper, Vanessa. I just want to echo what everyone else has said in the past. Thank you so much for the amazing work that you do on Harry Potter and the sacred texts. In The Order of the Phoenix, we are often talking about Harry dealing with quite a lot of trauma that he's faced in his life. And that kind of accumulates at the end of the last book with the death of Cedric. And it seems like in this book, Harry is therefore dealing with the loss of his parents all over again, and maybe even future loss around Sirius. And so this is something that I wanted to kind of bring attention to, because Throughout my life, I've suffered various traumas and I have a tendency to connect the traumas in a way that I don't do with the joyous things that have happened in my life. I often sit down and I think, oh, so this happened in my childhood and 
this happened to my family members and I've lost this person and that person and I've lost this sense of myself here and there. And actually, it really doesn't help to connect them in this way. And I'm wondering about, uh, first of all, what you feel about that with Harry, because we, we do see his traumas are connected and that they all sort of lead to Voldemort. But but if we break up the trauma and we disconnect them and we think about them in isolated incidents, does that help? I don't know. But perhaps when I'm dealing with my own traumas, I have found it. It really helps to not think of this trauma led to this trauma, which led to this trauma. Because as I said, I don't do that with the joyous things that have happened in my life. So why build up trauma? Because in that way, it does accumulate. And, and so I just really wondered what your thoughts were about that. Thank you. Lorraine, first of all, thank you for your message. I, I want to stress that I am not a trauma specialist. And so this is just one random Slytherin's thoughts from far away. But the things that strike me, one are to to link together a daisy chain of the joys as much as we do with the sorrows in our life, to me, I think is a very precious and powerful practice. And I sometimes do this, you know, people might have a gratitude journal or think of one or two things that they're grateful for before they go to bed. But what I like to do is to think of something I'm grateful for and find something in that gratitude that leads me to another gratitude. And, may, you know, maybe it was like, oh, I had a really nice time getting an ice cream with my friend today. Oh, that reminds me that I can walk to that ice cream place from where I live. I'm so grateful for that. And that reminds me that I get to live, you know, in a house where it's safe and warm and dry. You know, And, and so to kind of string together those joys, I think, is a, a practice that helps remind all of us of the things that are, you know, that we are lucky and, and, and grateful for or that we've worked for. On the side of the traumas, I, you know, one thing I do think that I have learned is that to be able to tell a coherent story about our lives in which those traumas find some space, not to negate them, not to inflate them, but to be able to, to situate them within a story of who we've become can be an incredibly healing process. I don't know more than that. And so if it's helpful for you to separate them, then all power to you, Lorraine. But but I think there is there is some value in finding a coherence within the tragedies that we've experienced because they have contributed to the to the wonderful people that everyone has become. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone in the pages of this chapter. Who were you going to offer a blessing to this week? So I want to bless Lily. Harry can hear voices at the other side of the veil. And this is just like me imagining. But what I was imagining was that it's Lily on the other side of the veil and that Mm. she can see Harry. And that mixed feeling of like wanting to be a siren to like get to him Mm. and call him to her. And that simultaneous feeling of like, but don't come to me. And so I just, you know, was reminded of Lily and want to bless her for missing so many years of her child's life and how terrible that is. So, yeah. Who would you like to bless Casper? I'd like to bless Hermione. Um, She has this great line, which we've kind of talked about already, where she says, this isn't right, Harry. And I loved her clarity in that moment. You know, we all need to be, I think, pulled back sometimes from the things that 
almost interesting but could drown us. You know, I'm, the, the image I have in my head is like when I go into a YouTube hole or, or write friends who might like go deep into a Fortnite gaming <laughs> gaming <laughs> hole. Right? It's so easy to just get drawn in and someone sometimes just needs to grab you by the shoulder and say, this isn't right and pu- pull you back out into the bigger picture. And Harry suddenly then remembers the mission of why he's in the ministry in the first place. So for her strategic nous and her willingness to interrupt potentially destructive behaviors. I have a blessing for Hermione. She also has the best line in the chapter. Luna's like, I know what's in that. And she's like something gribbly, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> Even Neville, who's, who like has not a mean bone in his body, is like... <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode. Come and join over the thousand people supporting us on Patreon, or you can leave us a voicemail or a review on iTunes. We hope very much to see you at one of our live shows soon. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 35, Beyond the Veil, through the theme of home. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions, executive produced by Ariana Nettleman, and our associate producer, we are proud to announce, is Chelsea Urson. Welcome, Chelsea, to the Not Sorry Productions family. Our music, as always, is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are a part of Nightvale Presents. Thanks to Lorraine Heyman for this week's voicemail, and as ever to Julia Argie, Maggie Needham, and Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Would you like to, instead of conceal, reveal... Through the 30-second recap. Before I do that, can I just say that the only thing I think of with the word conceal is conceal, don't feel, don't let what them is, know. Me too. The I whole kept, time. I kept wanting to sing Let It Go. <laughs> but now, now they, they know. know.